The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, Conversations on the New Development Policy. It's from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, otherwise known as ACVID. As the podcast name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices, and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. And I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and Director of Equity Economics. Now, most of us in the development world, at least here in Australia, have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how our new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you, the listener. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from across the sector and beyond. Now, a quick disclaimer, a note on our terminology, this is a conversation and sometimes we'll use the words policy and process interchangeably. So forgive us if we do that. It's all in the spirit of a free-flowing exchange of ideas. Now, I've always been keen to watch what New Zealand is doing in their development program, and they're much more than just our neighbours in New Zealand. If we're looking at them through the frame of the Pacific family, they're the cool, progressive, unflappable first cousins, really. And New Zealand went through their own development policy review process a couple of years ago, actually. Someone who was central in that process was John Kappa. He spent almost two decades at MFAT, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Trade, which is New Zealand's version of DFAT, which included a stint as New Zealand's ambassador based in Santiago and as a senior advisor to the foreign minister. He also spent time as manager of the Pacific, Melanesia and Micronesia in the Pacific and Development Group. He's now working as a principal consultant with Martin Jenkins, and he's joining us today from Wellington. John, welcome to Reimagining Development. Kia ora. Thanks for having me on. Um, John, you might have heard that Australia is currently going through its own development policy review. Over here, we've been having a lot of conversations about what should go into that and a lot of deep discussions. I think a really important part of that isn't always just about what is going in, but addressing how. How do we reshape systems and processes in this new policy? What do you think about that? Um, Well, this is an issue that... um... With my colleagues, we spent a lot of time kind of thinking about uh, from 2017 onwards, from when I that's when I started working back in the ministry after a stint um, in the Beehive, which is what we call our parliament here, working with the foreign minister. We combined our diplomatic, the diplomatic part of the MFAT with the development bit, and we called it the Pacific and Development Group. And we started off working on um, sort of fusing these two sort of organizations together. Uh, and so we got right into operations, we got into strategy, we got into process. And then further down the track, we started thinking about policy. We had a new minister, Nanaya Mahuta, um, was put into the role, which gave us a really great opportunity to think about policy settings. So I think for, yeah, from my point of view, you have to you have to look at the whole thing. Um, policy without process and, and, and taking an operational view is... Um, you know, won't deliver for you. 
Um, equally, if you just focus on process and sort of strategy and so on, um, you're sort of missing a really important part of the puzzle. So I think it's a great opportunity. I'm actually really excited to see what you're doing in Australia. Um, in my time working around the Pacific, um, you know, the, my Australian colleagues were, were um, you know, your, your program in Australia has an Im immense amount of clout and uh, potential and does some great things in the Pacific. And I think it's a, it seems like a really good opportunity to, um, you know, to go back and revisit where things are at and, and see what could work better, you know, what could be changed, what you want to keep. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time, isn't it? And um, Jess and I were joking a couple of weeks ago that the word revitalization keeps coming up in regards to our development policy at the moment, which I think is very telling about how we as a sector feel about it, that it is it is a, re a revitalization. But, you know, we don't know what the new policy will entail yet. And certainly there's been many submissions. And I think one theme that's coming up a lot is future-proofing, because we're in this really challenging moment right now, aren't we, where we're trying to respond to the continued impacts of the pandemic, the economic shocks. Of course, climate change is front and centre, and then there's a whole host of other issues that we need to be cognizant of um, that we can expect to be facing in the next 10, 20 years and beyond. How do you future-proof? Is this something you think New Zealand is doing well? Well, I think the first thing you need to bear in mind with future-proofing is just going back to what your values are. So anchoring your policy in, in, in sort of values is super important. And in New Zealand, um, we are more and more thinking about te ao Māori, which is the Māori worldview. And the Māori worldview um, gets us to think about, you know, the next generation. So the, I guess the idea is that we are sort of guardians of, of we're looking after the, the planet and the people for the next generation. So we're here looking after things for our grandkids. If you take that point of view, it kind of um, sort of leads to a difference kind of conversation about what you want to do in the future, the things you need to do now to set yourself up for success. But I think it's really important for you to think about sort of, you know, where you're coming from, what your values are. So my question to you would be, you know, as a country, what does Australia care about? Um, and starting from that point, you can kind of involving the right people at the right time, you can get sort of start your process of thinking about, you know, what you want to do. Yeah, completely agree. And I think everyone keeps talking about the three C's, but the C's differ slightly. But conflict, COVID and climate change, I think, are the main three that keep getting mentioned. I just don't think there's any way around the next 10 years without addressing those. And the new government we have here in Australia, led by Penny Wong and Pat Conroy as the two ministers on the foreign policy and international development lens, they've both been really open about the fact that climate change is going to be front and centre of a lot of this. And they've been very open about the fact that one of the biggest approaches they're planning to take is on listening. Um, so I guess that's, that's a big part of what we can see. I get the impression that there's going to be a fair amount of scoping at the moment, and then we'll move into what that looks like in the coming years. But it's a slow process, right? We've had eight eight or nine years of a really different approach, and we're, we're about to, to turn the ship around, as it will. Um, John, I'm going to push you a little bit more on the how because you and I have had a couple of good conversations about this. But I, some people think systems and processes can be quite boring. I actually think they're the most interesting part of how you deliver an aid program or a development program. So you were actually 
quite central. You were at the helm in some ways with what New Zealand was doing with integration. And in Australia, we've seen um, AusAid was folded into DFAT very much so. But what we're seeing now also is this real acknowledgement that you need to use all tools of statecraft in how you address these complex challenges, right? So we've got probably, I'd say, three really big camps of people who I think can be quite siloed. So there's defence, there's diplomacy, there's development, and we're not very good at working together across these things. We we all have our skill sets and we all have our terminology and we all have the incentives that play out in our bureaucratic structures. And it's actually finding systems that work together that helps you solve these problems across those three divides. And that's something that I think you guys in MFAT were incredibly good at doing. I think the Canadians have been really good and some of the other overseas examples. The Brits are going through it now. But it actually comes down to really... I wouldn't say simple things because I don't think they're simple, but it's not necessarily the big lofty ideas that people would expect. So things I often find myself grappling with, and this was actually a third of our submissions, the development policy, it was the how, but we started talking about things like, you know, when you fold in development practice to an agency and you know that you're going to need to be working on locally led approaches, say, how do you make sure that your executive has the right risk appetite where they're not just thinking about the branding or the reputational risk of the department, but they're thinking of the development risk, like the risk that we get this wrong? Like, how do you shuffle your risk appetite? How do you make sure that the contracts are all aligned? How do you make sure that your m systems, you know, someone might not have done m before and suddenly you've got this, these two different communities working together on things. And it's all those systems and processes is actually quite bureaucratic, but doing it well is actually the secret sauce, I think. Yeah, I went on my own journey with with this stuff because I came into a leadership role in the A program um, as someone who I hated the word process. Um, I was kind of the idea of filling out a form or a template, you know, drove me crazy. And it wasn't until, um, you know, sort of six months in that I realised that without good process, without great systems, you can't actually be creative, especially as a public servant when you're spending public money as well. Like you have to be able to account for it. If you don't, if you don't have the right sort of foundations, if you don't have the right risk settings, as you mentioned, if you don't have the right kind of strategies and direction and the things that keep you safe that sit behind all of that, then that magic bit, which you know, I would talk to my staff about, you know, the cloud, this is where the ideas come from. You can't really get there without all the other stuff being in line. So I was a convert. I went from being, you know, Mr. Anti-Process Guy to being very much about let's get all this stuff right so we can really release our people and, you know, free them up to go and do some cool stuff. Um, So you mentioned, um, you know, that word risk. If your staff don't understand what the organisation thinks about risk, then they're going to be hamstrung. And they will generally be risk averse. So, you know, it's really important that they understand, you know, what leadership thinks about risk, how you manage risk, how much risk you're willing to take. And then also that if they take risk and get something wrong, that they're going to have, you know, someone's got their back. So, I mean, that risk is one small part of the bigger picture, but it it all has to kind of work. And I, you know, personally went on um, quite a significant journey through the whole sort of world of process. Um, you say that up, so reluctantly. <laughs> well, because it just wasn't my brand when I kicked off. Um, but, but by the end of it, I think I was sort of seen as the process guy. But, um, you know, if you get it wrong, you can just 
trip your people up. If you get it right, you can sort of release them to go and do really great work. I think any bureaucracy is inclined to have too much process. So it, it, is, a, it is a real challenge to make it an enabler rather than a, a controller. Yeah, completely agree. And also, how can you, I mean, when you, I find it really interesting what you were just saying about making sure everyone in the organisation understands what you mean about risk. What is our stance on risk? And there's a chance that two or three dollars might go missing, but then there's a chance that a hundred million dollar program might not deliver any development outcomes, like it might be misspent, and that they're safe in those environments. And I guess how you communicate that, like those are really tricky questions for an executive. And I don't know that any donor has necessarily found that right balance. Well, if everyone's sort of afraid of the kind of the you know the, the front page of the newspaper kind of thing. Um, but in my view, if you are doing anything that involves investing in ambitious outcomes, so in this case, development, if you're not screwing some stuff up, you're not trying hard enough. But you need to make sure that your system from the minister down um, has some comfort with the occasional um, you know, mistake, because that's kind of how, how you push the boundaries to learn. Um, how else do you do things differently? I mean, it's that classic, you know, you learn through failure. Um, you don't want to have too much failure when you're using public money, but you do need to to push yourself and learn. So you, you need your risk settings to be clear. You also need your monitoring and evaluation to be working so you can see um, almost in real time what's working and what's not working. I, I also think a challenge that we now face as a sector, as a department, DFAT, but also as a sector at large, is we've been in an environment of austerity for some time now. Um, and austerity and, and cuts and sort of a general um, inclination to consolidate rather than grow is very different to the environment that we'd like to find ourselves in now, which is one of creativity and growth and, and thinking outside the square. And it's two very different ways of operating, right? Like if we think of that in sort of organisationally, it's two very different ways. Are you are you sort of wrangling and consolidating or are you growing and being expansive and creative? And so it, it is a different way of operating as a sector. How do you think we navigate that? How do we encourage that creativity and growth mindset? I think there are risks and opportunities in both mindsets. So, I mean, it's easy to see the opportunity in growth. We went through a period of growth in the New Zealand aid program. The risk is that you start just doing all sorts of crazy stuff because you've got too much money coming in and you don't have the systems to manage it. I think the opportunity in austerity is you really have to sharpen up and you have to think about every dollar. Are we getting maximum amount of outcome out of this dollar? Um are we doing the right things? It yeah. makes you makes you ask yourself all those questions that are really important to build um, your form for when you do get more resources. And of course, the risk with austerity is that you miss opportunities. Um, I always think, in, you know, it's kind of good to go through both from time to time. So, you know, in the case of Australia, from what I'm taking from you is, you know, you've been through this period of austerity. If you are moving to a sort of a, a period of more sort of growth or ambition, you know, hopefully your systems and processes and your people will be um, in a really good space to think about how to get the most out of the increased resources. Mm, I think that's right. And another guest on this series was Thanu Harath, who's the CEO of the Oak Tree Foundation. And when we spoke to Thanu, we were talking about how um, they're a youth-led organisation and where they sit on the risk spectrum probably very different to a lot of the peers that we have in the sector because they're able to really experiment 
Yeah. John, something I grapple with is um, pretending we all have the same skill sets versus acknowledging that we have different ones. So, and this comes back to that defence, diplomacy and development intersection I talked about before, and there's great skills amongst all of them. Um, One thing I've found, the Swedes tend to recognise it quite explicitly as the types of uh, skill sets they have between development expertise and even within those thematic groups, people spend their whole lives being a governance specialist or an economic governance specialist in particular or a fragile states um, specialist. Um, Whereas when you sort of have these big integrations happening, it's almost as though we pretend everyone has the same skill set. And really, I think some of them are almost investment managers and diplomats are really about you know, they're, they're building relationships, they're talking about what the existing government policy is, they're helping justify it and corral and work with that. What do you think about all this? I mean, diplomatic um, organisations like MFAD and DFAD are interesting, right, because you have your rotational staff who who move around from you know, one place to another, run, you know, into different roles. Um, we started off thinking that we wanted everyone to be rotational. Um, but quickly realised that um, specialisation is super important if you're trying to run an A program. And then we had to sort of ask ourselves, well, what do we want our people doing? Um, because at the end of the day, a development agency isn't out there teaching kids how to read and write. It's not out there digging ditches and laying pipes. It's, it is an investment decision-making mechanism. Um, and so we thought about specialising a whole bunch of thematic roles to help the agency become a more intelligent client, I guess, and also to support staff to make better sort of strategic decisions as well. Um, I don't think you ever get it quite right. Um, My sort of view of organisational planning and management is a bit like the sort of first law of thermodynamics, which is, you know, everything falls apart. So you build something and then it slowly falls apart and then you have to rebuild it again and then it slowly falls apart. So, I always I sort of became really comfortable with um with messy. Um, you know, messy is okay, and you're never going to have it quite right. The staffing thing in particular, especially in an agency that has to manage different streams of people, different types of expertise, people moving around onshore, offshore. Um, I don't think that you will ever get it quite right. And then of course you can always go out to the market to get certain skills if you need it. But I think, you know, for for a development agency to be an intelligent client, to be able to talk to providers um, and to task them and to contract them to do the things it wants them to do in the most effective way is um, you do require certain skill sets to do that, that you don't normally see in the diplomatic part of the organisation. So really good learning and training alongside it. And I guess you need that centralising goal so people know what they're working towards it's fine to have mess underneath in how you get there but knowing what you're all working towards didn't you guys have a big unifying goal um we have like a pacific goal um and a development goal but the way we uh addressed that sort of challenge was to go through a strategic planning process where we develop strategies for each country that we're working in with sort of short-term, medium-term, long-term outcomes that we were trying to deliver. And above that, you have the ICE policy. Well, that's what we called it. It's the International Cooperation for Effective Sustainable Development, I think. I'm not great at acronyms. 
um, which is which is the policy process that you mentioned at the beginning um, in 2019 that kind of sets the overall direction for the development program. And, and my understanding is that's you know where where Australia is, is at at the moment. Mm, I've made myself a little note, John, to look up thermodynamics. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but it sounds relevant. Yeah, um, it's probably, I think it's um, not normally applied to sort of organisational theory. No. <laughs> Why not, right? <laughs> yeah. Cross-sectoral. <laughs> I, um, I think the other sort of point of difference that we sometimes see in Australia when we're looking at New Zealand and development is is the relationship with the Pacific. And I know we as a sector, of course, we're striving to to have a really positive, productive relationship with the Pacific. And I think that um, I think that where Australia sees development fitting into our foreign policy approach has varied quite a bit between the previous government and the current government. And I think we now um, hopefully recognise development not just as altruistically the right thing to do, but also as a really important tool of foreign policy and statecraft and engagement with the region, particularly in light of changing geopolitical dynamics and the role of different actors in the Pacific. Um, I'm curious about how that conversation sort of evolves in in New Zealand. Um, Yeah, so this is a tricky one, Um, particularly for someone who's no longer part of the system. So first of all, um, feel free to caveat away. Yeah, well, when I come to Australia, uh, I do notice that you and Australia have a far more sort of evolved conversation about international relations and foreign policy in your newspapers and um, just sort of in, in general, um, particularly around Melanesia. I think Papua New Guinea. The Australia-Papua New Guinea relationship is so kind of present in a lot of people's minds that it makes people think a lot more about where Australia is at and what it does in that particular part of the Pacific. In New Zealand, the conversation, I think, um, isn't isn't quite the same as Australia. We have a large Polynesian diaspora here, um, and often the conversation around the Pacific is about the Pacific in New Zealand. I think um, when the development bit and the foreign policy bit came together, there was a real debate around interests and values and how can we combine these two things. My view is that they're often the same thing, but just expressed in different ways. Mm, So it's really important um, to think about what you stand for, but also to realise that, you know, there's a whole set of interests in there as well. So, for example, you know, a stable, secure Pacific, um, you know, it's in, in New Zealand's interest to have stability in the region, but also as a value, we're about conflict prevention um, and so on. So getting that conversation going, um, for us, it it's sort of more of a cultural challenge to begin with. Yeah. The current New Zealand foreign minister is um, really, really values, like her her language and her approach is very values sort of oriented, which is great. It really resonates in the Pacific. And here. And in Australia. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. Well, sorry. I, I'll let me just cut you off there for a second, John, because I think it's it's really interesting to think about the parallels with Australia. I, I feel we also have a foreign minister now whose language is is very values based, and it does appear um, you know, in the very early days of this government to be resonating with the Pacific. But I think something that else is resonating is this new concept of First Nations foreign policy that we're hearing about. And it's still very much um, in its infancy as a concept. I I don't think any of us really understand how it will play out. But I want to tie it back to what you said at the start of this conversation, which was about the Maori worldview, which is really fascinating. And it's something that I don't think we've properly integrated into development here in Australia before is um, the worldview of our Indigenous populations. Um, When you talk about the Maori worldview, what does that actually mean in practice? So I think we're on a learning journey too in New Zealand in that regard. And having um, you know an Indigenous foreign minister has been you know, enormously powerful in terms of how the development program and the foreign ministry you know thinks about this. Um, for me, so I can speak sort of from a personal point of view. Um, te Ao Māori, which is you know my kids who go to school here are far more sort of across this than I am. I I was educated in New Zealand at a time when we studied sort of Tudor kings and queens and so forth. Um, My kids study sort of Polynesian migration and and so on. But the te ao Māori, how it it sort of works for me is it's it's about thinking about things from a different perspective, a different time frame, um, and thinking about what are we doing now and and what's the impact going to be in sort of 50 to 100 years rather than three years. So, you know, Māori tribal um, sort of interests that run businesses, they don't have, they don't think about sort of returning value to shareholders on an annual basis. They think about their shareholders being their grandkids, for example, just to use a really simple example. Um, So I think that way of seeing the world really resonates, um, particularly in Polynesia, but more broadly in the Pacific. So we're trying to grapple with what it means here in Australia and even some of the processes by which you involve some of the First Nations groups are sort of at odds with the way that their own systems work. There's an EOI that's been run for an ambassador, for example, but an EOI and people putting in an application to be the new ambassador is somewhat at odds with some of the more traditional systems that might elevate elders to decision-making roles. So there's just this natural disconnect between the two I've been thinking of. And the more the more people I talk to, the more this idea of timeframes keeps coming out. Like it, it's going well, I mean, to- I would I'll just let it play out of um you know it's it's a it's sort of a journey for 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 people, for individuals, for the whole sort of system, for society. But it's it's great to hear that you're on it. Um, you know, in New Zealand we're on it too, but we haven't nailed it. Um but you know the, probably the fact, better than we are. Who knows? But I went on exchange to Auckland and I was shocked at how inclusive it was the fact that we're all um talking about it i think is really positive um you know i'm fascinated with aboriginal culture i don't know what the world view is but i'd love to you know i'm i'm sure it's going to add some level of richness and um to your conversation around development policy for example and i can imagine that um aboriginal people in australia feel a connection with with melanesia in particular so you know what does that mean um Mm. And, you know, it's just you kind of have to kind of take the plunge and see what happens. Yeah, we're doing that at the moment, which is really nice. I think the tricky thing is in Australia we've got more heterogeneity 
in our Indigenous, like there are so many different Indigenous groups. So one thing that struck me with the Maori language, with, there were fewer versions of the Maori words than you would find here in Australia for the, the different groups, depending on which lands you were on. So I think just as it's hard to find a foreign policy for Australia, it's going to be very hard to find a foreign policy for First Nations groups across Australia. So it will take time. But I think the point is that the process has begun and I think it's going to be a very big consensus driving organ. Um, objective first and foremost is it publicly kind of accepted or embraced this idea i think it is everyone i speak to seems to be pretty well behind it there is a lot of debate going on in the media at the moment um there's some beliefs that might be tokenistic or add additional processes and one of the first things that a lot of the groups involved and rachel knows far more about this than i do but um one of the first steps is actually asking for a voice to parliament before those peak bodies like the Coalition of the Peaks would like to pursue a foreign policy. They actually would like to do a few things domestically first, and that's their prerogative. That's so going to be, yeah, it's going to be a hectic year on that front and very, very timely, about time, I'd say. Um, I'm not going to let you get off the hook, though, so easily because I wanted to ask you about things like country strategies and transparency. So just back into the how one awesome. more time. I know you keep trying to get away from it. You're doing very well. And it must be hard as well to talk about this stuff when you're former MFAT, um, and you're now in the consulting world, and I want to ask all about that too because it is a shift and you're probably seeing things with new eyes, and you're talking about processes from an organisation you're no longer part of. But um, one thing we're probably going to be grappling with a fair bit with our new policy is how do you establish these bilateral relationships? There's the regional side, but then there's bilateral. And so much of what we're trying to pursue in places, including the Pacific, Southeast Asia, far beyond, we might be imposing norms like, oh, we really want to have gender equality programs. And that might not necessarily be the first priority of some of the countries we're working in. And at the Australasian Aid Conference, we were just talking about this recently. But what do you do when, you know, different norms come into contradiction with each other? You might have, on the one hand, leave no one behind. And on the other hand, you have a, a country ownership policy. So we're in the process of figuring out how we develop our country strategies they used to be quite elaborate, deep, intensive analytical processes where it could take up to a year and you'd be meeting with all the different ministries in that country and trying to figure out their priorities. Now it's a bit shorter just because of resourcing processes. But I think that's something that Minister Wong is keen to, well, I don't know, but I, I imagine that ministers are keen to revisit how we establish our country strategies. We're at a point of reset for Australia with our neighbourhood. What do you think Australia should be considering, if anything? You might not have any views. Or what did you guys used to do? How does New Zealand do this? Well, I guess my first point, on which doesn't fully answer your question, but on the norms okay. bit, um, you know, when you're engaging with countries that might not necessarily have the sort of same views on, you know, things like gender or um, LGBTQI um, rights and so on, is, you know, and, and, and it sort of illustrates the, the, the Māori worldview example, which is you have to make a decision, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? Um, if you take sort of 100 50 to 100 year view of, of what's in the best interests of women. But let's use the time frame of, you know, the ones who haven't yet been born. Oh, wow. It helps you um, kind of arrive at a, at a decision about how you're going to deal with the problem. And it might be that you decide to, um, you know, terminate the program, change your relationship, or it might be that you decide to stick with it for a bit more time. But it does give you a framework to think about the problem that is slightly different to the one that you normally use. So um, that's something that you know, I've grappled with a number of times. Um, but then, you know, when I was a kid, homosexuality was illegal in New Zealand. 
So, you know, um, I'm not that old, but, uh, you know, we're talking like 20 or 30 years ago, or probably a bit longer than that, actually, probably more like 40. But, you know, change happens, but it happens over time. So, you know, it, it's it's really important to sort of to think about that as sort of something that you don't necessarily have to answer straight away sometimes. Um, going back to your other question about how we did strategies, look, I... I've struggled struggled with that word strategy. I mean, what does it mean? What does it mean to you? You know, what is a strategy? Is a strategy tactics? Is it a is it an aspirational statement like a vision? Um, it's you know, everyone wants to have a strategy. Everyone wants to you know have a purpose and a vision. And I I totally get it. But first of all, you kind of need to understand you know why are we doing it? What are we trying to do here? Mm. For us, for us, the strategy was basically an organizing principle. How, how are we going to deal with this country? You know, what do we want to do and how are we going to do it? And then how are we going to bring country into the conversation about how we're going to work together? So that sort of concept of partnership. I really like that organizing principle because I think it's pretty unfair to have a strategy. Three years ago, we didn't know about COVID, right? And so I was just, as you were talking, I was thinking about these long-term timeframes of women who haven't even been born yet. I love that. But then at the same time, you have to be so nimble. And that's what we expect of our international development program too. So it's it's not a very fair <laughs> predicament to put them in. And also, I mean, I think it, the challenge is to keep them really simple <clears throat> and not to let them take over. So, yeah. you know, I don't know, to use some sort of numbers, you kind of, I sort of wanted 80% of what we did to be strategically aligned and 20% not to be because who knows what might happen, something might happen, might be cool, you know, that we wouldn't have done if we were being sort of real sticklers about the strategy. So um, I think it's, so it's going back to that sort of process and systems kind of view, you need to make sure that your people are really clear on what they're doing and why. And they know what direction to head in. Um, and How a strategy, do you do that? What's so, <laughs> so, you know, what do you, I could use a time frame. you know, where do you want to be in 10 years and how you, how are you going to get there? So, you know, um, that'll change sort of country by country or region by region. How do you do that? Involve, you mentioned before, you know, other sort of parts of the system that are interested, like the you know, defence, customs, civil aviation, all of these organisations have a have a kind of an international or a regional kind of posture. Um, civil society, mm. you know, par- partner governments. Um, I think the more partnership you can kind of weave into it, the more success you're going to have because people feel bought into the process. In a way, um, the process of doing it is almost as powerful and important as the final document. And at the end of the day, the final document, as you said before, will be out of date, yeah, you know, pretty quickly because Within we'll have a couple a, of years. We'll, yeah. we'll have a COVID or a whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's more about everyone having been brought along on the process, so they know how to adjust on the fly as things change because they were part of the process, so they know the those organizing principles. I'm also reflecting on something while you're talking, which is. Um, sort of links back to what you were saying before about risk appetite. But if it's communicated really clearly, if everyone inside an organisation and inside government in general knows what the top thinks or knows what is okay, it's and this sounds so simple, right? Like communication internally sounds very simple, but it actually requires resourcing and it requires being organised and it requires a certain amount of bravery sometimes on difficult topics where you're it would be much easier to stay in the grey space, but you're actually choosing a fault line of what's okay and what's not okay. 
But having that sort of leadership, which I think we are seeing with Minister Wong and Minister Conroy coming coming down and what they think on issues, I think that's really helpful and that in itself changes the way that behaviours play out across and, government. And that's not a process or a system, that's culture, right? Mm. Um, which is probably the most powerful special source part of your organisation um, and really does come from the top. So, you know, you can build a risk tool and you can have risk management systems and so forth, which you know are really important. But if the culture's right, you'll probably get the behaviours you're after. I'm going to say there, people always talk about culture and it came up quite a lot in consultations. So there's sort of three categories I think of. There's the ministerial imperative, there's the skills and capability in the systems, and then there's the culture. But people often stop and just say, you know, we have to change the culture, but no one knows how to. So... How? What do you think changes culture? I think it's conversations internally. I think it's people seeing other people being promoted because of certain skill sets. I think that people are very good at spotting trends and patterns. Like we, it's hard to articulate, but we all know when we see a bad driver, you can often anticipate it before they do something wrong. We're just attuned to picking patterns. And I think it's the sorts of things within an organisation that are almost unseen that create those patterns we all pick up on. Yeah, I mean, if you could um, sort of bottle you know, a simple way of, of creating good culture. <laughs> I think everyone would buy it, right? It's really hard. And this is nudge theory. The other thing about good culture is once you, it's like, you know, it's fleeting. Once you get there, uh, it's really, it can be hard to hang on to as well, um, particularly in a rotational organization. I mean, I think it's really good leadership. Um, delegation down, delegating decisions down to the lowest possible level, there's an inspiration element to it, um, which comes both from leadership, but also from the sort of systems you have backing your leaders up. So really clear purpose, really clear sort of um, understanding of how risk and performance is sort of managed and, and rewarded. Um, and But there's something that's really hard to put a word around, which is kind of just the, the vibe or the, the juju. Um, and how does that happen? Um, I think it comes down to people, right? And I, I, I think leadership is really, really important, and having the right people, um, you know, in, in the leadership roles who are who are empowered. I think that's right, and I, I think you're quoting my favourite Australian movie, The Castle, when you say that it's the vibe. Have you seen it, John? Is that the one with the um, <laughs> something's going to go in the pool room? Yeah, straight yeah, to the yeah, pool yeah, room. Yeah, to the it's pool the room. vibe. Not a day goes by when I don't say that something is the vibe. So um, I like that we're going to wrap up on that point. And I think also the idea of, uh, you know, a 101 of how you get good culture is is partly what we do in the consulting industry, isn't it? It's trying to support organisations through that kind of change. So before we go, the, uh, the move to the private sector, how's it going? Oh, it's super interesting. I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's really tangible. Uh, you you know, you have this unit of measurement, which is the hour, um, which which really sort of sharpens how you work and how you think about using your time. You, I've found I've become a lot more productive in, in some ways, like I'm really thinking about what I'm doing and being really careful about how I manage myself. Um, I'll, I will probably go back to the public sector, but I think, um, I reckon it would it's it's a great move for everyone who works in both public and private sector to sort of move between the two and try them both. You know, that sort of cross-fertilisation, um, I think, you know, is really powerful. 
Completely agree. I remember asking a former boss of mine in a bigger consulting firm what the the biggest value out of the consulting industry was, and he said it was a deadline, which I think is so true. We just we have to work to deadlines. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, but, but you know, you sort of get to the point where you have to do something different, and you know, when that sort of time comes, um, I think it's important to to give it a go. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been so insightful. So many nuggets of wisdom in this conversation. Um, We've been Rachel Mason-Nunn and Jessica McKenzie on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development for our future needs. Thanks again and bye for now.